Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Anglo-Saxon England, episode 3, Change and Calamity. This time the job is to set ourselves up for the Adventus Saxonum, the coming of the Saxons and the Anglo-Saxon settlements. In just one episode we're going to look at how Britain fared between the 3rd and 5th centuries, a rate of progress I warn you not to expect forever if my experience of the history of England is anything to go by it's probably best to start right back at the beginning with the Rome of the 2nd century, albeit remarkably briefly. The province of Britannia lay at the western edge of the Roman Empire, but despite that was considered rich by Tacitus writing in the 1st century, and there were goods from Britain that the empire valued. At the top of this list lay tin, mined in Cornwall in the far southwest, relatively rare elsewhere in the empire, and of course essential for making bronze. 
but there were other minerals. Gold in Wales, lead again in Wales, the Peak District and the Pennines in the north of England. Salt at Droitwich in western England, coal in the East Midlands and iron from the Weald in south-east England. Large parts of Britain were capable of mass arable farming. But despite all this, it's doubtful if Britannia made much of a profit for Rome in the long run. The kind of farming the relatively cold and wet climate of Britain could support didn't really produce olive and wine, which is what the empire demanded. For over a century, it was, in all probability, a drain on imperial resources. Now, one very broad way of dividing Britain is to crudely draw a line from the east coast, north of the River Humber, all the way down to the south coast by the eastern edge of Devon. And on the eastern side of that line is what might be broadly called Lowland England. On the western side of the line lies Cornwall and Devon, northwest England, Scotland and Wales, upland Britain. It's a pretty crude division, I grant you, but in Roman Britain the two developed differently. And in the history of the migrations, the same would also be true to some degree. Within the western upland zone, the Roman military dominated. Britannia, to a degree, was frontier land. During the 2nd century, the army stationed there numbered 40,000 troops, based in Caerleon in South Wales and York in the north. Now, this is a massive number. It's one-eighth of the total Roman army at the time. As I'll explain, this had an enormous impact on the economy of Roman Britain. Lowland Britain, meanwhile, developed rather differently though still affected by the size of the military presence. In lowland Britain, three colonial towns were established by the settlement of retired soldiers at Colchester in the east, Gloucester in the southwest, and in Lincoln in the northeast. London and York got added later, but London in particular became the centre of trade and easily the largest city at 50,000 inhabitants at its peak, and the only city with the wealth and magnificence to compare with other cities of the Western Empire. So essentially, Lowland Britain was more densely settled, the centre of much administration, though of course by no means all. Britain was a relatively late entrant to the empire, and in a sense the empire remained strangely separate from its native population, sort of superimposed on the local society, a society of conquest. Take the army, for example. Its size poured in massive resources, food, drink, leather, metals. And so unsurprisingly, the major bases were surrounded by a cloud of suppliers. But just as the army was pulled mainly from outside Britain, principally from Gaul, so were most of the suppliers. Actually, the contribution of the locals tended to be restricted to providing labourers, slaves, prostitutes. There's little evidence that the money economy spread to the rural population, despite the system of taxation which in fact was often based on converting the local produce into bullion via the towns and trade. Similarly, exploitation of Britannia's resources and minerals were farmed out to imperial monopolies, and so most of the profits and the output went straight back to the imperial government in Rome. And unlike most other regions of the empire, Britain contributed none of the leading officials of the Roman state in Britain. The Romans seem to have had scant respect for the British. The rural farmsteads that survived from this period are firmly un-Roman, so it's almost as though these two communities lived side by side. Not quite, but hopefully 
you get the picture. Nonetheless, the existence of this massive army and all the associated administration and support services, all the materiel the army needed to operate, created an economy in Britain larger than it was to have for 1,500 years. Vast quantities of goods made their way to Britain. Huge quantities of vast amphorae filled with olive oil from Spain, or pottery from Gaul, or wine from Palestine. Some of this came to Britain by sea, but the vast majority came overland and at imperial expense. Essentially, the way it worked was when the military supplies were loaded, enterprising merchants used up any spare space with luxury goods to sell to the Roman administrators and soldiers in Britannia, with the cost silently absorbed into the cost of military supply. And as the trade flowed, Britannia's classical-style towns grew and flourished. Well, that's all very happy, but then the third century happened. The beginning of the century saw the last of the sustained campaigns in Britannia, but elsewhere in the empire, trouble flared, along the Rhine, the Danube and the Persian frontiers. And soldiers began to leave Britannia to help with those threats, until the army in Britain was reduced to just half its original strength. Then, in the 230s and 250s, Barbarian raids in Gaul and northern Italy disrupted the trade between provinces. Coastal piracy appeared and expensive forts, the so-called Saxon shore forts, had to be built in Britannia. And under all these pressures, the classical economy fell to pieces. By the end of the 3rd century, the big public cities, the Coloniae, and the capitals of the regional administrative zones, which were called the Civitas, underwent dramatic change. Some of this looked like economic collapse. In London, York and Colchester, the numbers of inhabitants shrank dramatically. The public spaces like the Forum, public baths, theatres were deserted. The massive diversity of people in York, with people from France, Sardinia, Greece, North Africa, all that disappears and changes. In line with these changes, the economy shrank dramatically and catastrophically, causing enormous dislocation. But the economy didn't die. Although on a much smaller scale, it changed. Everything now became much more local. We see in the archaeological record that eating habits have changed. Beer replaced wine. Butter and lard replaced olive oil. Candles and braziers replaced oil lamps. Continental pottery almost completely disappeared from Britain, but in its place over the course of the 3rd century, a local British industry grew up to replace it. The style changed. All those big amphorae used to move goods around the empire now completely disappear. And in the process, the economy spreads. It deepens and begins to interconnect much more closely into the daily lives of the British people. As industry and supply becomes much more dependent on the local population, evidence does now appear of the use of money throughout the rural population. The new local pottery industry, with lower-value, simpler, unpretentious products, began to serve this wider market. And by the start of the 4th century, with the collapse of the old classical economy, Britain, ironically, becomes much more Romanized. Much more of the economy moved from the centre, the big imperial public towns managing military supply and trade, to the periphery, the British rural areas, which were now producing food and pottery, metalware, and so on. In effect, 
a mass-market economy began to appear, producers creating small surpluses fed by demand from a much wider group of people. This showed itself in a number of ways. In the big public cities like Colchester and London, you might think that the abandonment of the public spaces meant the collapse of the city into ruin, decay and despair. The end of a civilization, like Charlton Heston kneeling before the Statue of Liberty on the beach. But in fact, not. Chaos was not the result. There was still plenty of new building in the cities, in fact. But whereas once the buildings had been packed tight with traders and shops, now they'd become rather elegant. Large, spacious villas with big gardens and impressive rooms now took up the space left by the Forum and the other public spaces and the shops of the traders. What in fact had happened was that the big cities had become the place where imperial administrators and tax collectors lived and worked. They'd become cities for the affluent bureaucrat. In the countryside, new villas were being built, or existing ones expanded or improved, the vast majority in lowland Britain, close to those big public cities. They were owned by a new local British elite. The villas are often massive, elaborate structures, with big audience halls designed to greet dependents and tenants in the grandest possible way. Entertainment rooms for important guests and allies, with luxurious mosaics created on classical and pagan themes, designed to impress visitors with their wealth, their erudition and sophistication, with big gardens and parks. What was happening here is that a new Romano-British elite and oligarchy was emerging, cashing in on the new-style economy. The new villas show plenty of evidence of a new social stratification going on as this British elite emerged with its large rural villas or those new impressive villas in the old public towns. The big cities hadn't died, but they were no longer in fact driving the economy. Because as the economy broadened, small towns grew in importance. Now small towns had been insignificant in the classical economy, but now they grew, or new ones appeared, driven organically by the needs of the economy, embedded in the local agriculture, trade and manufacturing. They are modestly Roman, if there is such a thing as a scale of Romanity with a kind of mix of classical and local architectural styles with local temples and religious sites. There might be a Roman presence there, but it would have been limited to the housing of a few local officials or a state granary or a collection point for taxing kind. The new towns look medieval in character. A strip of land with a frontage onto a street, a workshop and cobbled yard behind, and then a long tenement behind with room to grow food. The small town played a vital part in the 4th century economy, turning agricultural produce into taxes and manufactured goods and distributing products to native peasants and farmers, newly seduced by the rather hybrid British version of Roman culture. Meanwhile, investment in the countryside drove improved agricultural production and manufacturing and often helped crop yields to improve. Heavier ploughs and imported ploughing animals were brought in to cultivate more difficult but still productive soils. And smaller farmers were also part of these changes, were able to run a small surplus to buy themselves a share in the Roman way of life, eating food that was very much part of Roman culture rather than British at the time. 
archaeological remains show these small farmers eating coriander, apples, using new styles of butchery used on the continent. All of this meant that between 290 and 360, Britain had achieved a new equilibrium and actually hit the high point of Romano-British culture. The economy was smaller than before, grant you, but it was more inclusive, more widely based, a network of local markets and a low-value currency. It had spread Roman culture far more deeply in British society than before, from a new Romano-British elite to small towns to peasant farmsteads. Now, if you were of an argumentative disposition, you might poke me firmly in the chest and point out that all of this construct is built on the most confusing array of archaeological evidence. And you would be right to so poke. But I would respond by pointing out that this experience was not unique to Britain. All over the empire, localised Roman societies were developing as the empire changed. This was even true of Italy itself. Ostia, the great port of Rome, had changed from economic powerhouse to a city populated by large pleasant estates, just as had happened to London. So far, so good, then. The shattering of the classical economy had been non-optimal, granted, but we are back in a good place, or relatively good. Archaeological evidence from burial sites forms a very large part of the evidence during our period of study, so you might be much diverted by the study of the cemetery at a place called Poundbury in Dorset on the south coast. The cemetery used to serve the Roman town of Dorchester. The excavation revealed a population from the 4th century, so it tells us something of what life was like, at least to some small degree. You might be unsurprised to learn that people were shorter than today. Men almost all between 5 foot 4 and 5 foot 8. Women between 5 foot 2 and 5 foot 4. Some hair survived and suggested that men wore their hair long at the neck and dressed in oil. Women wore hair coiled or braided in buns. The site also showed evidence of the social hierarchy. So one group of graves stood apart and was composed of people taller and more robust, with indications of obesity, with bones that show less sign of wear than normal. Which is great for this lot, because elsewhere in the cemetery the indications are that this new economic equilibrium thing is good, great, but it didn't mean an easy life. The skeletons there display evidence of lives of hard, physical work. Adults probably lived with nagging arthritis and aching joints, The state of women's legs suggests they spent long hours squatting, probably grinding corn. Children died in great numbers at Poundbury, and the community that buried them had many people in their twenties, fewer people in their thirties, and still fewer in their forties. By and large, their short lives were the result of a poor diet over many years. So, life wasn't easy. But between 290 and 360... Britain enjoyed a period of relative prosperity. And the mantle of Rome sat much more lightly on Britain's shoulders, for example, than it did on those of Gaul. This seemingly robust economy was to collapse in just 50 years. It wasn't one thing that caused the fall. The first sign, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand, were a few raids from the north of the wall. Painted people rather than white walkers in this case and the Scotty from Ireland raiding across the Irish Sea, which led to a flurry of military activity in the 330s. 
Slowly, the trouble intensified. Emperor Constans was forced to lead an expedition to Britannia in 343. Defences were strengthened, and this had to include forts on the English east and south coasts and the northwest coast of Gaul, the so-called Saxon shore, to defend against seaborne Germanic and Frankish raiders. And then in 367, we have the thrilling-sounding barbarian conspiracy, a concatenation of invasions by different tribes. Picts, Scots, Saxons overwhelmed the defences at Hadrian's Wall and the coast in a year-long chaos that looked suspiciously well-coordinated, hence the use of the word conspiracy. It has to be said that pretty much everything connected with the word conspiracy is normally a hoax or an exaggeration or a load of tripe. The bloke who tells us about all of this was at the time in Antioch, which could not be described as being at the heartland of the English countryside. Given that he was also politically connected to the Roman general Theodosius, who eventually suppressed the violence, there was probably a bit of bigging up going on. But nonetheless, the barbarian conspiracy was part of a pattern of rising pressure on Britannia and the empire. In 383, Magnus Maximus took the Roman troops in Britannia to find himself a better life in the imperial palace. In fact, he found himself the proud possessor of a public execution, but it was not until the 390s that imperial Rome reappeared in Britain after his departure. And from there, the end was in sight for the Roman legions. Coins stopped being minted in Britain in 387, and the last major influx of imported coins ended in 400. This absence of coins, unsurprisingly, resulted in a revolt by the remaining army. And out of this chaos came another pretender to the imperial throne, Constantine III, who took most of the remaining troops out of Britain, including anyone who happened to be manning the walls on the Saxon shore. Constantine himself found himself a public execution in 411. But as night follows day after he had left, 410 saw a devastating Saxon raid as they walked past the deserted defences of the Saxon shore. All of this meant three pressures on the Romano-British economy. The dislocation of civil war and rebellion. The devastation of barbarian raids. And the diversion of the wealth of the economy into building defences. The result was a slide into the Dark Ages or sorry, into the early medieval age, which left its mark on the archaeological record. The great villas of the 3rd century elite begin to fail, although the smaller estates probably went first. For a while, there were some that profit from the failures, snapping up land and buildings at bargain basement prices, and no doubt for a while they felt jolly smug. But that wouldn't last for long. Renovation stopped almost everywhere, Grand rooms were converted into practical rooms for agriculture, something your upwardly mobile Romano-British aristocrat would have shuddered at the very thought of. The pottery industry went into steep decline, and by 400 had essentially vanished, leaving the population recycling old stuff or making it by hand. Iron nails became impossible to find. The iron industry went the way of the pottery industry. Inevitably, all of this hit the towns. The suburbs went first. Public works stopped. Public maintenance was not far behind. Public sewers clogged and were not cleared. Water supplies failed. 
that some point in the early 5th century, urban life in Britain, the gift of the Romans, simply came to an end. Glorious York is a good example. In the 5th century remains of the city, the fossils of beetles that inhabited high grass and reed beds blanket the ground, because York had reverted to marshland. In Canterbury in this period, we see one of the stranger burials. It is of a woman and a man seated, buried with great care in a pit lined with sand. The woman held one child on her lap, another lay at her feet. Two dogs were laid across the father. The significance of the burial is twofold, quite apart from that continual frustration of archaeology. That looks interesting, if only I knew the story behind it. Firstly, the burial was inside the walls of Canterbury, which in normal times was completely taboo. And secondly, the child's head had been crushed. So there was violence around there somewhere. It was probably the violence of disorder, social collapse and cultural breakdown rather than invaders. But it was violence nonetheless. So, by the 420s, Britain's villa had been abandoned. Its towns pretty much empty, Organised industries dead, Roman soldiers and administration gone. Within a couple of generations, a prosperous, thriving economy had turned to mush. The history of the 5th century is one of vague signs in the sand, conflicting evidence on the hills, scraps of written evidence which have been poured over for centuries to extract every iota of meaning. If these ages aren't dark from every respect, then really none are. How quickly and how hard did the British economy turn to mush? What happened to civil and political authority and governance while this happened? Where are we with Christianity? And crucially, where are the Angles, Saxons and Jutes? And Franks and Frisians while we're at it? The written evidence is sparse and difficult to read. At some point, Gildas's story comes into play that Britain splits up into warring petty tyrannies the Saxons are invited, and that war, fire and brimstone is released on the heads of the Britons. But Gildas gives absolutely no chronology. He was writing in 543, a hundred years later, so it's really not easy to know when all of this was supposed to have happened. There are some other written sources. One is the life of St Patrick. St Patrick was probably a child in the early 5th century. His life doesn't tell us a lot about Britain, but it does tell us something. He was captured by Irish pirates and taken as a slave to Ireland, so there's a thing then, in itself, evidence of the chaos and violence of the period. His father was a landowner called Calpurnius, whose grandfather was a priest called Petitus, and lived in a place called Banavent Tabernae. All Latin names. Patrick was undergoing a Roman education at the time, the same education Gildas went through. So look, these are straws in the wind. But together point to the survival in some ways of a Romano-British way of life. Then there's the visit of a chap called Germanus to Britain. Germanus was a new kind of policeman, the policeman of a religion unusually interested in wiping out its competitors. I speak, of course, of Christianity, which by now had been for over 50 years the official religion of the empire. The extent that Christianity had taken over religion in Britain is again somewhat at dispute but it was at least widespread, probably dominant. And there is evidence of pagan temple building that continued well into the 5th century, so it's not yet exclusive. 
Anyway, Germanus came to snuff out the heresy of a Brit, a Brit called Pelagius, who taught in Rome in the early 5th century. Germanus came to preach against Pelagianism in 429. Apparently on his trip, he met a number of high-status individuals, which suggests there's still some sort of hierarchy going on. It's not all mush. He baptised British soldiers, which suggests there is still some paganism openly around, and also that there are British soldiers. Although given that Germanus, a priest, and therefore presumably a lover of peace, love and the blessing of small children, actually leads the British into battle at one point, so they're clearly a little short of generals. So all of this suggests there's some survival of organised society and probably some kind of civil authority. Also, someone somewhere wrote that letter before 454 to Flavius Aetius, probably written around 430. You remember the one, rather pitiful. The barbarians push us back to the sea, the sea pushes us back to the barbarians. Between these two kind of deaths we are either drowned or slaughtered. It suggests an official letter of some kind, written by someone with general authority, and also an inclination to whining. So, while the archaeological record tells us that the British economy descends into chaos, that the towns and villas are deserted and fall into ruin, it is, is it not, entirely unsurprising that all of this takes a bit of time. Some kind of pan-Romano British authority hangs around for a while, sticking their collective fingers into the dikes. Hierarchies and some kind of Romano British society survive. Some landowners cling on. The market for surplus goods staggers on for a decade or so for those larger landowners' farms to serve. But at best, it's a story of decay and progress mushwoods, as it were, in the direction of a state of mush. Money is also important because money is a sign of an economy that produced surpluses, that people bought and consumed, and it's a sign of civil authority. Here, the news is less good. As we've seen, Britain stops minting coins and relies on imports. There's then a period of coin clipping, i.e. where you clip off as much of the coin as you can to generate some bullion, and that might be done centrally. But after 407 or 8, even this disappears, and we are now in an essentially coinless economy. What survived and circulated may have been used more as bullion than as something with an agreed face value. Often you find coins used hung on a chain and used as a nice-looking pendant. The archaeological evidence paints a really rather heart-rending story. It paints a story of a life among the ruins, of people slowly forced to abandon their way of life and find a new way, of communities broken up, of new communities being set up, of some groups that cling to the past as long as they can, seeking to preserve the last shred of the life they once knew. One route in the new way was to re-inhabit the old hill forts of Iron Age Britain, which famously happens at Cadbury in Somerset. British folk with Roman materials arrived on the site, bringing with them what they could. They robbed stone from local buildings where possible, they looted what objects they could find, because new pots, nails, metalwork were no longer available. I have always been something of a clumsy oaf, pottery-wise, and generally get an earful on the regular occasions I drop a mug. Dropping a wheel-produced pot in the 5th century was an event of some significance because it wasn't coming back. A tragic event, an occasion for general mourning. 
The community grew at Cadbury as people gave up trying to hold on to their old life and they came into the hillfort as refugees. The stratified society of the 4th century disappears. Once you've been forced to abandon your grand villa and hit the road to Cadbury, you don't keep your status for long. But there's some kind of organisation there, and presumably some kind of leadership. Defences are organised and improved, for example. There's even the odd bit of evidence of objects that came all the way from Byzantium, brought all the way through the Mediterranean and up the Atlantic coast, which is really rather remarkable. They probably came seeking the commodity known as the British metal, tin. But generally, for most people, most of the time, it's a matter of survival. And as they struggled, there wasn't much room for social elites. Elsewhere, people tried harder to keep the Roman world going. At Berderswold, a fort on Hadrian's Wall, the garrison was kept going. Of course, now they had no pay, but they probably kept a version of the institutions of local Roman government going. The soldiers policed the local community and fought for them if needed. They had to rebuild and remodel the fort. Big communal granaries for storing grain brought from miles and miles away were no longer needed. They needed living quarters, workspaces. Some of these buildings they made were quite grand halls, but all built in wood. There's a quote from the 6th century historian Procopius about Gaul, which probably reflects what was going on at Berderswold. Roman soldiers stationed on the frontiers of Gaul to serve as guards handed down to their offspring all the customs of their fathers. Even today they are clearly recognised as belonging to the legions to which they were assigned in ancient times, and they carry their own standards when they enter battle, and they preserve the dress of the Romans in every particular, even down to their shoes. It's all really rather poignant. Berderswold struggled on for a further hundred years or so, before at last they gave up the struggle and disappeared. In other areas, a local strongman might appear, and a good example is the Roman town of Roxeter in Shropshire in western England. There, someone seems to have taken over, built a ruddy great timber hall in the middle of it all, and kept a much reduced community going for a while. Folk like this feel like the starting of Gildas's Tyranny, the petty kings and chieftains of an atomised Britain. The long and short is that things limped on for a while. Central civil authority probably survived for a bit, but much of Romano-British administration probably quickly went to the local civitae, the local regions, before disappearing completely. The changes affected different regions at different rates and in different ways. Folks reacted differently. But nonetheless, the trend was all the same. A life amongst the ruins, a heart-rending struggle to retain some semblance of the old world and set up a new one. In all of this, there's not much evidence of the kind of violence that Gildas seems to suggest. It's not a story of fire and destruction wrought by painted picks or rabid Scotty. It's not a story of waves of Germanic invaders wreaking hideous ruin and combustion. It's a story of economic and social dislocation. But at some point, those Germanic invaders will come into the picture. The Adventus Saxonum, the coming of the Saxons. But what form it takes is questionable and even controversial. Anyway, we'll talk about those Germanic invaders in a fortnight's time, which I have decreed in my wisdom shall be the gap between Anglo-Saxon episodes. So meanwhile, thanks for listening, everyone. 
Good luck and have a great fortnight. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.